morning, Northbrook. It's good to see you all today. We're going to be in Hebrews 10 again this morning. We're going to be talking about the topic of forgiveness. And I'll say up front um, that probably some things I'm going to say this morning will seem kind of radical and out there for some. And I ask that before you let that thing well up in you that says, I don't agree with that, that you say, I will think about these things. I will evaluate what scripture has to say. I want God to teach me. Uh, Because there are some things in this passage that I think are a bit radical and um, I think have been lost by many because of the systems that we follow. Well, let's read um, verses 1 to 18, and then we're going to be looking at 11 to 18 in particular this morning. I'll be reading it aloud, and I ask you to follow along. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Remember that phrase again about drawing near, but specifically in this case, make perfect. It cannot make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, Sacrifices. there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The same word again, perfected. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, the Holy Spirit adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. I want to start this morning with a little mental exercise. So I know it's Sunday morning, and everybody's tired on Sunday morning, but I want a mental exercise to take place before we go any further. And I want to ask you a question, so you're going to have to think about this. I don't want you to say it to me, I just want you to think in your own mind and come up with an answer. I want you to think back in history far as that will go for you. And I want to know, in your opinion, what is the worst thing that a human being has ever done? 
what is the worst thing that a human being has ever done? I, I don't want you to think about in terms of generalities. I want you to think of specific individuals or an individual and the worst thing that you think has been done in human history. That might take you back a few years. It might take you back a long time ago. But you can think about that for a moment. If I wait too long, you'll start falling asleep. So I don't want to wait too long here. Okay, we'll stop there. So whatever you've got at this point, you just hold that in your brain. I recently read a book called Unstoppable. It was my, one of my books of the month last month. Um, it's been out for a while. I don't know if any of you have ever read it. I came across it and um, uh, read it. It's the story of a Jewish man who survived the Auschwitz concentration camp as a child. He, his whole family was taken in as prisoners, loaded into boxcars and taken to, to the concentration camp. Um, all of his family died. He's the only one who survived it. Amazing book. He was the first Jew to head an oil company and the first Jew to hold, uh, to head a commercial bank in the United States. And uh, you start to find out about the, the discrimination and the, we use the word this morning, racism that exists as you read the book, as people try to keep him out of those industries. Um, but uh, as I thought about this question, I, my mind went to Adolf Hitler. In, the, in Auschwitz, over a million people were killed. And a lot of them were children. There, there are, they think that there are records of how many people died there. They didn't keep records of the children that were killed. This guy talked in his book and his story about the children who were killed. They're, they do know that over 800 children were killed in one day in gas chambers. And it was just a constant thing that was going on there of, of the killing of people. And he was on the death march that was taken out of the concentration camps into Germany and into other areas. Um, but that to me is got to be one of the worst things that happened in human history with Hitler. Um, I don't, I sometimes wonder what's worse, what Hitler and those people did or the people who deny it ever happened. Um, uh, I just, but at any rate, uh, that's one of the worst things in my mind. Some people, if you ask them this question, they will, the name that will come to their mind is Osama bin Laden, who masterminded the attack on the Twin Towers. And there's just a strong hatred for him. Um, kind of turning the tables on us as Americans, if you were from Japan, you might think of Harry Truman, who dropped atomic bombs on two of their cities and in one day uh, killed over an estimated 200,000 people. I guess it wasn't on the same day, but total uh, over 200,000 people died. From our perspective, it was justified, but from Japanese perspective, they don't have quite the same uh, feelings about what happened on that day, particularly that it was dropped on innocent civilians in their city centers and not on military centers. If you were from Ukraine, which are, is my family roots, your answer might be Joseph Stalin, who through policies that he enacted starved almost four million people to death in Ukraine. And, um, and many others, like my great uncle, were arrested, deported to Siberia, and killed for their faith. Um, uh, Stalin is really high on my list because of those connections. And um, he, was an, he was an awful man. But whatever, whatever the thought was in your mind, as I was thinking about this, I, I thought atrocities like this have been going on for millennia because humans sin. What the Assyrians uh, and Babylonians did to the Jewish people was horrific. 
and what they did to the other people who lived around them. And we could just go far back in history and see how, how awful people can be. Some people might even, some of you might have even thought of Adam and Eve uh, as the worst uh, thing in human history because their sin wasn't just about them or even a limited number of human beings, but it, it, in, in the end, it infects every human being and ultimately leads to all these other things that we consider to be horrific crimes. We know their own son evidenced the internal and external effects of sin as he killed his brother. He had a sin nature, like we all do, that drove sinful action, a false worship of God, and ultimately it drove him to murder. And the, and the reality is that if we just read the Bible, we don't even have to go beyond the historical record of the Bible to know that we are broken people living in a broken world and what was true in ancient history is still true today. Some of this with my thinking was prompted by the news of this past week with the five little girls who were left in the desert by, by human smugglers who just took them in, dumped them off, and left. If you want to read a book um, about the immigration problem and what's going on and to get maybe a little different view than what you've gotten in the past, there's a book called Coyotes that tells the story of coyotes is, an, is a slang term for the uh, people who smuggle these other people across the border. It's a fascinating read and just be prepared to have your view shifted a little bit on the whole immigration issue. But I I find it, I saw the videos of the kids being dropped over those walls, those little girls being dropped over the walls, and then um, read the stories of these girls found in the desert. One of them they thought was dead because she was so dehydrated. And having grandkids that are in those age frames, um, I, it just broke my heart. And I just can't imagine the depravity of a human being who would do that to those kids. Our American history is littered with serial killers, war, slavery, our treatment of the Native Americans, people like Jeffrey Epstein, and corrupt authorities. And you know, it's, it's easy, on the one hand, we don't even want to bring these things up. We don't even want to talk about these things. And especially on a Sunday morning, it's just like, Pastor, I didn't come here to get more of what I get all week long. But I want you to think about these things because I want you to think about forgiveness. I want to put these things in front of you because I want you to think about what is required for forgiveness. And, and I also want you to realize that while we might point outward at the sins of others, No, I, you know, I don't think anybody, maybe you did, maybe I'm assuming negative, but I don't think anybody, when I said, think of the worst thing that a human being has ever done, I doubt any of you went, hmm, you know, I've done some really bad things. Which I'm, I'm not trying to beat on you, but it just reveals how easy it is for us to identify really bad things in others and not so really bad things in ourselves. And we have a tendency to be able to very easily point outward at the sins of others while dismissing in our hearts that we have sinned. But the reality is all of us have skeletons in the closet that we hope no one remembers or will ever find out. I, I wrestle back with my younger years when I was in high school and I was a mean, angry boy who did mean, horrible things to other people for pleasure. And with ones that I've had communication since then, I've tried to go back to them and express some kind of apology to them. But there's many more that, who knows? And, and what, 
strikes me as interesting as I think about myself and I think about human beings is that considering our faults, we would presume, how would we ever presume to sit in judgment over others and the gravity of their sins? We are messed up ourselves. And then we start to judge other people for their sins and, and come to conclusions about them, oftentimes without even a whole lot of information. We buy into all the news reports of how awful and evil certain politicians are and are pointed towards being angry with them and verging on hatred of them simply because they exist. And, and then, like the Pharisees of Jesus' time, we even go far enough to believe that some sins are unforgivable. If you were a prostitute in Jesus' time, if you were a Pharisee, if you were a publican in Jesus' time, you were beyond forgiveness. Because you could never take care of the uh, restoration side of it. You could say you're sorry, but how could you pay back the monies that you had taken from other people? So you could never be forgiven in Jesus' time. That's why it was such a massive thing when Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more, your sins are forgiven. He didn't have a right to do that because it was impossible for them to be forgiven. Just the suggestion that Hitler could possibly enjoy, be enjoying the heaven and the presence of God makes some people's stomachs turn over. But would you consider that it's possible that right before Hitler died, he may have, even committing suicide, he may have trusted Christ like the thief on the cross and could actually now be in the presence of God enjoying God the same goes for bin Laden now maybe he didn't have a chance when he was shot but the reality is with Epstein regardless of how he died Many are comforted by the thought that he is rotting in hell for what he did to those young girls. How do we know? How do we know that people like that at the end of their lives haven't trusted Christ in the last few moments that they had and are in his presence? It bothers us to think that people like that could actually have come to know Christ. And that reveals in us, if it's true of you, that we see some sins as unforgivable. Maybe more because we don't think it's fair. But it still is the issue of the forgiveness of sins. But I would go so far as to say that our big battle is not with the Bin Ladens and the Epsteins and Hitlers. But I would argue that there is a special place in our hearts for those who have personally wronged us. We have this little, this little place in us for people who have wronged us badly over the years. Maybe you're different from me. Maybe the, I'm the only one here this morning who struggles with this. But at least for me, there are certain people who have done specific things to me in the past, and I struggle in my response to them and their deeds. And what they did were not small things. They weren't minor little blips on the radar of having a bad day. They were major things that had lifelong consequences, in fact. I really struggle with my response to them. If their name comes to my mind, 
there is this immediate feeling in me in regards to their their persona, who they are. I can tell you that in one case, because of what the people did, I actually begged God to kill them. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, I wish they were dead. I pleaded with God to kill them. If you ever struggle with what we call imprecatory prayers and psalms, I've been there. It wasn't good. If, if I have ever felt hatred, it was in that time. And I would say probably you have never reached that point, but you may have said or simply thought, I could never forgive him or her for what they did to me. And I can honestly tell you, I understand how that feels. But at the same time, as I've grown older, I've wondered at times if there are people who feel the same way about me. I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if there are. And that leads me to another thought something that has been expressed to me by others over the years. That is, for some, realizing the seriousness of what they have done to others and seemingly understanding that God abhors what they've done, people have said these words, you have no idea what I have done. God could never forgive me. There's only one time that somebody has said that to me. I've, I've had it said repeatedly, but there's only one time that I ever said, what was it that you did? And they just smiled at me and said, I'm not even going to tell you. And I've wondered for ever since then. I can see their face, and I've wondered ever since then what it was that they did that was so bad. And while I would say that it's not a common statement, I don't hear it all the time, I've come to believe that many, even Christians, practically live and think in this way. What I mean by practically is that they, they might affirm certain things to be true, but then the, the way they live that out reveals what they really believe. You could say it this way. I heard uh, a friend years ago say that, that the Bible says that the fool said in his heart there is no God. But that's a positional view, an understanding, a the theological view, if you will. But then he said that most of us have a tendency to live our lives on a day-to-day basis, basically declaring by our choices that there is no God. So there's, there's this theological, positional view, and then there is this practical view of how we live and what we declare by how we live. And for so many Christians that I've talked to over the years, and even in my own, my own life and what I have dealt with, I think that there are many of us who practically live and think in the way that there are things that God could not forgive in our lives, even while we espouse that God forgives us of our sins. There is this tendency, and, and I, I would say that my experience of talking to Christians as students in a college over the years, and as a pastor now for almost 20 years, that there seems to be in many Christians an awareness of their sin, and even though they have asked for forgiveness of that sin, they live with a sense inside of them, a frustration, a belief that God has not forgiven their sin and that he still holds something against them. And probably that would be most easily revealed when, as I've said many times, life goes sideways and the first thought is, what did I do? 
in answer, and, the, and the question that goes along with it is, why is this happening to me? And a sense that God is after me for something that I've done. And that's why I think that Hebrews 10 is such an important portion of the Bible for us to understand. I think that these verses that I've read this morning, and particularly verses 11 to 18, are verses that most Christians have just not thought through what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us here. And the, the broad expanse or the broad scope that he wants us to realize in relation to God's forgiveness of sin. I, I think it is radical and life-changing what he says here because it tells us what God has done in Christ to bring us into an unhindered covenant relationship with him. Someone has said, to err is human and to forgive is divine. And I would say that Hebrews 10, 11 to 18 and the book of Hebrews as a whole is telling us that what is not human to forgive has been offered by the divine and given to all who place their trust in Jesus' sacrifice. And the scope of it is complete. Every sin. And I would suggest to you this morning and this is a problem for us that needs to be addressed. But I would suggest to you this morning that when we think that there is something that God could not or has not been willing to forgive, that we are actually diminishing the work of Jesus. And we are diminishing the character of God because Hebrews 10 makes it clear that forgiveness is complete and final it's done looking at the passage in, in verse 11 we're reminded again of the perpetual sacrifices offered by the old covenant priests every day the blood of animals flowed because every day humans came to offer sacrifice for their sin. And to some degree, I think that, that, that what that whole practice and experience was like is beyond our comprehension today. We don't, we don't live in a world of farm animals for most of us. And for most of us, we didn't grow up in a world of farm animals. It's taken me 60 years of my life to read, finally read the books, All Things Great and Small, All Things Wise and Wonderful. I'm, I'm on the second volume of it. They're, uh, they're quite long, but having lived for 12 years in a farm community, boy, I wish I would have read those books when I first went into that ministry in Tama. I think it would have caused me to view those people totally differently than I did. But for most of us, we see meat in the grocery store and it comes from the grocery store. There are people who actually believe that. That's where meat comes from. They have no connection that it comes from an actual animal that they're eating. And when they find that out, they're horrified that they're eating that animal that's walking around out in the field. But, but because of that, to transport our minds and our senses back 2,000 years to the sacrificial system of all the animal slaughter that went on day after day after day and the blood that was shed day after day. It, it's, I think, beyond our comprehension. I've tried over the last few weeks to bring up some of this, but there are some of the experts in Jewish history who believe that on the day of the Passover alone, on the day of the Passover alone, 
in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus over 300,000 lambs were slaughtered each year on that one day alone and I've told you that they had gutters coming out of the temple area to drain the blood away and it would flow they say it would flow down into the Kidron brook and it would turn the brook red because of all the blood, those, those gutters would just be full of blood gushing out as the animals were slaughtered and the extra blood was poured out. On one day, it's a staggering number, but what Hebrews 10 tells us is that not one of those sacrifices that went on year after year and day after day, not one of those sacrifices could ever cover or forgive one's sin, period. And in contrast then to the work of those priests, the author wants us to look at Jesus. Jesus, who did not offer the blood of animals to pay for his own sin, because he didn't have any sin. He had no need to offer animals for sin. But what he did do is according to his Father's will and desire, he offered his own body and blood as sacrifice for the sins of others. You know, I think that statement... It's just like when I was writing this out, I just thought, that's so so say something that's not so obvious. But but it it's become so commonplace to us to talk about Jesus offering his body and his blood in payment for our sin, that it's just like it goes right past us anymore. We don't really think about it. We really don't comprehend it. It's a truth we hold to. But it doesn't go much further than that for most of us. This Jesus who never sinned himself, never sinned himself, took responsibility for the sins which others committed, the sins that I committed, the sins that you committed and will commit. He bore our guilt and shame. He endured the penalty for our sin and he experienced the wrath of God upon that sin, your sin and my sin. That's what Hebrews 10 is telling us. That he stood in our place not as an animal, but as a human being. Not as a martyr, but as a sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sin. And his blood flowed from his body, bringing forgiveness to all who trust in him for acceptance with God the Father. And those are all words you know that you have heard over and over and over again. It's what we call the basics of the gospel. And we feel good that we know those truths. But the question is, What do we do with those and how do they connect to our life with God and our life with others? Well, I would say one thing is that he's going to tell us here is the wonderful acceptance that there is with God because of Jesus. What he's telling us in these passages, in these verses, is that every, every, every sin that every person has ever committed can be completely forgiven once for all. Forever. And we know this to be true not because of how we feel. We base so much of our practical theology on the basis of how we feel, 
how it makes us feel or how we feel about what's said. So we know it to be true, not because of how we feel, but because of what Jesus has done. And he makes this point to us repeatedly in this passage. Unlike the priests who every day continually offered sacrifice, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Unlike those priests, we're told that after Jesus offered one sacrifice, one sacrifice, he sat down. When I think about the priests and their daily offering, I'm, I'm a number guy. I, I never like math, but I do weird things with numbers. Uh, my oldest daughter, Rachel, does the same thing. We see house numbers or we see car license plates and we come up with little mathematical formulas of how to make those numbers come out to be some other number. You know, like this number plus that number equals that number or that number minus that number equals that number. So I'm a number guy. I, I, I worked for a shoe company 40 years ago almost now. I can tell you stock numbers of shoes. So I, can, I see the shoe in my mind, I can tell you, I remember numbers. And that might be a bad sign that I'm losing my mind in my old age, but the reality is I've been able to do this my whole life. I just have a thing with numbers that I don't forget them. I won't remember your name, but I will remember numbers. So I have from time to time thought, I wonder how many sermons I have preached since I've been a pastor. Between teaching and preaching, how many of those I've done? And it goes into the thousands. But that's like once or twice a week or maybe three times a week at fellowship. We had three times a week where I taught. But then I, I take that over to these priests offering who knows how many sacrifices every day of their life for dozens of years. And it's, it's an it would be an astronomical number how many they offered repeatedly, continually. This, the, the writer of Hebrews wants you to get the futility of what they did. Over and over again they had to do it because it couldn't take away sin. But Jesus, get this, Jesus having offered himself once for all time, which would also include all sin. It's a comprehensive as far as the individual, all their sin, having offered once for all, sat down. What they never could do, what the priest never could do at their job. He sat down because no further sacrifice was necessary. He sat down because there could be no greater sacrifice than what he offered. What he did was so comprehensive that it was final. It was done. So make it personal. His sacrifice was so comprehensive for your sin that he sat down. Notice further, and I want you to get this, that his sacrifice was fully comprehensive to forgive all the sin you will ever commit. And I've said this to you over and over again. When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, you weren't in existence either bodily or a soul floating around out there somewhere. You didn't exist. You had never sinned when Jesus died on the cross. You had never physically committed the sin. But Paul writes to the Colossians and says the record of our offense, the record of our sin was nailed to the cross. 
Now you, you either have to acknowledge that Paul's letter applies to us today and also acknowledge that your sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus. The record of your sin that had not yet been committed was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Or you have to say that Colossians only applies to the people that Paul was writing to at that time. And that really does then move into the realm of heresy. Paul wrote a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit written to the church of his time and applicable to the church of all times yet to be, saying the record of your sin was nailed to the cross with Jesus. That means 2,000 years ago, the sin you had never yet committed because you were not yet in existence was paid for by the blood of Jesus at the cross and was forgiven at the cross because his sacrifice, once for all, when it happened, paid for the sin and brought full and final forgiveness. I don't know how else to explain that to try and make it any clearer. So that means that when you trusted Jesus, if you have trusted Jesus for acceptance with the Father and forgiveness of sin through his blood, at that moment, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross to pay for your sin that was nailed to the cross was at that moment applied to you. And the record of your sin was gone. Because Jesus has no more sacrifice to offer for your sin. He sat down. He has sat down waiting for the day when his enemies become his footstool. And the writer of Hebrews wants you to not only understand the forgiveness that has been given to you, he wants you to understand the victory that we share in Christ. The idea of, of someone sitting down and their enemies becoming their footstool was not a, a real thing that happened, but it was uh, an idiom in their time that meant that that person had completely and definitively subdued his enemy. It goes back to the whole idea of Adam and Eve and skull crushing. That when, that when God said to Adam and Eve, and he, in front of Adam and Eve, and he said it to the serpent, he said, there will be offspring of Eve that will crush the serpent's head and would bruise her offspring's heel. It was an idea that carried forward in history of this idea of crushing your enemy's head. So going back to Shannon and her favorite Bible story where this tent peg is driven through the guy's skull, that, was a, that, was, that ties into that head-crushing thing. It's a complete and final decisive victory over the enemy. And to be able to sit down in leisure, in the, the, the picture of stretching your feet out and resting them on the neck of your enemy, is to say that enemy is done. He has no power left over my people. And what the writer is also saying here is not only are your sins of the past forgiven when you trust in Jesus' sacrifice, but Jesus will never stand up again to offer sacrifice when you sin in the future because that one sacrifice was sufficient to forgive the sin you have yet to commit. It's forgiven. He has sat down in rest in victory over his enemies, in victory over sin. He brings final forgiveness and he will not get back up until it's all done. The whole 
course of human history is done. So I want you to hear this as clearly as you can and to think about this, that on the day that a person trusts in Jesus for forgiveness of sin, all of it is forgiven and they are saved from its penalty, they are saved from its power by a merciful and gracious God. And on that day, that person enters into covenant relationship with God to be loved by him as their son, as his son or daughter forever. And there's no sin that can break that relationship because all of that sin was forgiven. And there's more. Not only is sin rendered powerless in your life, not only is your sin dealt with comprehensively, comprehensively, not only is your sin forgiven, but there are three more amazing things that God does for you according to the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 10. The first is found in verse 14. He perfects you. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In contrast to the sacrifices of the old covenant priests who had to continually offer sins because they could not, their sacrifice, continually had to offer sacrifices because those sacrifices could not make perfect those who draw near. He has perfected you. The Greek word here, perfected, is a variant on the words that Jesus cried out on the cross just before he died. Hanging on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. Finished. Completed. That is a variant of the word, it's just a tense variant. But it is in the same family of words as what we read here in verse 14. For by a single offering he has completed for all time those who are being sanctified. He speaks here, and when he says this, he's speaking of a complete and also ongoing cleansing from sin through the sacrifice of Jesus. That on the day that you trusted Jesus, the work of Jesus on the cross was applied to you. And his work of sanctification, of cleansing you at that moment was done. There is cleansing that goes on with you though. It continues forward. It has, it has an effect to go forward to cleanse. It isn't just a cleanse what happened then, but it goes forward and continues to cleanse. So that for the believer, by the work of God and not by any words you ever say in the future, what Jesus did on the cross brings complete and continual cleansing of sin. There was nothing you could do and there are no magic words that will save you. And there is nothing that you can do now and there are no magic words that will continue to cleanse you. The language here in chapter 10 is not that when you go to God and ask him to forgive you and cleanse you of your sin, he cleanses you again. The language here in Hebrews is it happened and it's continuing to happen with whether or not you're even aware of it. He has completed for all time those who are being cleansed. It's just ongoing. Well, does, doesn't my sin damage my relationship with God? No. Not according to what he says here.
The second thing that he tells us in verse 16, we're told of a new covenant with our Heavenly Father in which he puts his desires in our very being, changing our sinful desires for self-gratification to his desire to obey him. That's the idea of I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, this covenant. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He's not speaking of a literal something is inscribed on the inside of you. But I have a scan of my heart now on a regular basis because I had a heart attack. The person doing the scan does not suddenly look at the screen and say, hey, there's writing on your heart. The idea is into my very being, my very essence. That's the idea of the heart. God has put inside of me what he wants me to be, what he wants me to do, and it's far broader than Ten Commandments. And the third thing that he does here, and also part of this new covenant, and this is the part to me that is stunning, is not only the forgiveness of sin, but his choice not to remember my sin. He not only forgives my sin, he chooses not to remember my sin. And there's something really important we need to understand here. God keeps no record of the sin of his children. That's what it means that I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. God keeps no record. Do we believe when the Bible says that our sins are cast into the bottom of the sea, do we believe that? Or is that just a nice verse to talk about from time to time or sing songs about from time to time, but it isn't really true? Does God have a filing system with, where he pulls out, he looks up John Yonke, he pulls out my card, and it says paid? No. Because God remembers my sin no more. There is not a list of them with paid on top of it. The God of the universe who is omniscient and knows all things cannot forget, but he can choose apparently according to Hebrews chapter 10 not to remember certain things. And the thing that he chooses not to remember out of all the things that he could choose not to remember is my sin. How unlike humans is God? Because I will tell you, I have a very good filing system in my head when it comes to the wrongs that have been done against me. And I'm not even close to being omniscient. I was really close when I was about 47, but as I've aged, that ability has died back. But God is omniscient. He knows every single detail of human history in the past and in the future. And he chooses not to remember. He has no record of your sin because it was paid for by the blood of Jesus. That was anticipated by the writer of Psalm 130 saying this, if you, Lord, kept a record of my sin, Lord, who could stand? And the obvious answer is nobody. But even in the old covenant, there was an anticipation of somehow God not keeping a record of sin. He says then, continuing, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. It's the work of God who said in Isaiah 43, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Blotting out means that it's just, you know, remember when you were in junior high, middle school, and you 
wrote something on your paper that you didn't want anybody else to see, so you started doing lots and lots of scribbles over it and kept doing circles and circles and circles until no one could ever, did anybody else do that? You passed notes and then that was how you got rid of it. In their time, it was the idea of ink or something that would just, it would, it would be spilled onto it so that you couldn't see what was there. It was gone. In Isaiah 43, all of your sin, past, present, and future, so that means at least two important things. First, we can never honestly say or believe that there are certain sins God will not forgive. It is wrong of us. It is calling God a liar to say or believe that there are certain sins God cannot forgive. That's the seriousness of it. It isn't just some theological difference. It is to call God a liar who has said, I will not remember your sins. Secondly, and this is going to be the radical statement, after which I may lose my job. It also means that we never need to ask forgiveness again. There is no record. And I realize that statement is a head-turner for many. But just think about it. If God has already forgiven us for all sin, come back to me. Some of you are, are racing off in your mind. I want you to think through this. If God has already forgiven us for all of our sin at the cross, then why are we asking him to forgive a specific sin today? Honestly, I think that when we come to God, this is my opinion, but it's based off of this passage. If we were to come to God and say, God, I did such and such today, please forgive me for my sin. God's response would have to be, I don't remember that happening. I don't remember that happening because God is the one who has said, I will remember their sins no more. What are you talking about? It isn't just that God would say, I've already forgiven that. It doesn't say just that. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. I don't remember what you're talking about. And it isn't just that the writer of Hebrews says it. He says the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. I mean, that's the ultimate trump card. The Holy Spirit said this, guys. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. You know, we talk a lot about already and yet in relation to end times, things that are already for the believer and the body and things that are yet to come. But what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand is this is an already already. It's not an already with a not yet. It is an already because it happened at the cross. And it's applied when we believe. And I would ask you this. Just think about how, how this would work out. Isn't asking someone to forgive you again when they've already forgiven you implying to them that they actually didn't forgive you? If I come to you and say, you know, I did this and I was wrong, will you forgive me? And you say yes. I forgive you. And a week later, I come back to you again and say, um, 
You know that thing that I did? Yeah? Uh, will you forgive me? Your response is going to be, I, I already did. I told you. Okay. I, f I forgive you. Okay. And then they come back the next week and the next week and the next week. Or in our case, the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day, continually. Every day. Wouldn't that be insulting to you? Isn't that saying, I don't really believe that you forgave me for that? Ultimately, that's what it communicates, is that you don't really believe that God has forgiven once for all because the sacrifice of Jesus was once for all. So I would say to you this morning, if you have trusted in Jesus' sacrifice, will you not rest in him as well? If you haven't put your trust in Jesus for forgiveness and acceptance for, with God, won't you do it? I mean, this is amazing stuff to be in a relationship with God that's free because of what Jesus has done. Somebody might object, well, that would mean I can live however I want to. Oh, the writer of Hebrews is going to deal with that here in chapter 10. He's coming after that one hard in just a few verses. No, you can't live however you want to live. Why would you want to? Understanding that this God, that this Jesus loved you so much to not only die for you, but to do something for you that would bring eternal relationship with God with no barriers simply because of what he did, why would you ever want to go against him? The reality is even Hitler could have been forgiven. And if you've trusted in Jesus, you have as well, completely and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have done something that is so beyond our understanding that we want to explain it away or undo it or diminish it because it seems too impossible to us. Not to just our thought process of theology, but in our very core because we are so unlike you when it comes to forgiveness and not remembering offenses we're so unlike you that we just can't imagine it to be true when it's all said and done. Help us to understand how complete the forgiveness of Jesus is. And give us hearts to not only understand that, but for it to grow in a love, a love and an affection for you that causes our hearts to want to serve you. In your son's name, amen. Let's respond through our singing together as God's people. Let's stand together singing before the throne of God above.
tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me behold him there the risen lamb my perfect spotless righteousness the great unchangeable I am the King of glory and of grace one with himself I cannot die my soul is purchased with his blood 